Hey, hey, Cassandra, we're uh, we're about to record. You should sit down. Norman. Get... Y- yes. What do your elf eyes see? Uh, um, our our mics. No, no, you're supposed to say they're taking the podcast to Isengard. We, we've 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 been there all, several times yeah, but already. No, like for reals this time. <laughs> what do you, what do you what do you mean for reals this time? Well, you know the trees and the orcs and the 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 wizard and we're we're taking the podcast. To Isengard. Will there be stupid fat hobbits? Yes. Okay, I'm in. Oh, okay. That was easy. <laughs> I was. I had this whole sales pitch that you know there's potatoes, and you, you know, gotta boil them, <laughs> mash them, <laughs> stick them in a stew. There, there were also gonna be you know some crunchable horses. Um, we're back. <laughs> with season two, our yes. continuing coverage of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This time we're talking about Two Towers. Join us on Dueling Genre every Monday through Friday to talk about Lord of the Rings one minute at a time. We're from Lord of the Rings Minute. Leave now and And never come back. No, please come back. (laughs) Dueling Genre. everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing characters from The Eye of the World, the first book in the Wheel of Time series. Joining me for the discussion is first-time guest Lauren Roundy. Welcome, Lauren. Hey, thanks for having me. So glad to have you on. Uh, I've, I've known you for years and years uh, at this yeah. point, uh, and... I actually had in the back of my head that you'd be a good person to have on as a guest, but it, you know, ne- never reached the point of reaching out until I saw you talking in some depth about the wheel of time series, which is one of our most requested topics, but I'm a little, I was always a little hesitant to dive into because I know it's one of those texts that there are, there are fans with deep knowledge of, uh, and I have not engaged with it in depth before. So I'm very glad that you were willing to come on to the podcast to talk about the wheel of time with me. Yeah, thank you. I can understand how intimidating it is. I, Back when we knew each other in high school, years ago, I was obsessed with it even then, and I was chatting off everyone's ear who would listen about it. But I also kind of knew that not everyone was into epic fantasy, so I had to kind of be careful who I talked to. I didn't want, I was kind of like a closeted nerd, at least where that was concerned. So... (laughs) I definitely remember people recommending this book series to me back in high school and, and all the way to the present day. Um, and I was, I, I definitely enjoyed high fantasy. I just somehow it was never one that I picked up. And then by the time it was like, I've heard so much good things. I want to pick it up. It was like, this is a dozen book engagement and these are big books. I don't know right. if I want to <laughs> go there. Um, I've listened to the first book as an audio book. Turns, turns out it's great. Everyone was right. Um, definitely recommend it. And I do look forward to uh, moving on. But my understanding is you you know the entire series, correct? Oh, yeah. I've, I'm actually rereading it for my maybe sixth time or something. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, or I think you mentioned this, you know, I started a YouTube channel recently. Um, Amazon Prime is picking up the series. They're, they're trying to do a what we're hoping is a competition for Game of Thrones. And so 
you know, for years and years, literally like some of the very first things I ever looked up on the internet when I was a kid, I went to the library because we didn't have the internet at home. And I looked up animation um, because that stuff interested me, interested me a lot. And then I looked up the wheel of time and theories for the wheel of time. And so I've been nerding out about the wheel of time since I don't know, like 1997 or 96. <laughs> so however many years that's been. And, uh, the fans were so rabid online and, you know, the internet back then was kind of a different place. There was just so much interesting stuff. It was kind of like the wild west. And I, I sort of found some amazing sites and kind of went down the rabbit hole and got really into these theories. And then I was like, wow, some people are rereading the series. So as I waited for the next book to come out, I would reread all the previous books, you know, so I got, I got really into it. And then the final book came out, um, in 2013 and, um, of course the fans were very excited at the time, but then after that book came out for the last seven years or so, it's been pretty quiet as far as, you know, the wheel of time fandom goes. And then of course they announced the Amazon prime and Sony pictures are going to be making the TV show. And they've shot, I think the first six of eight episodes. And then of course, with, um, recent events and the coronavirus, they've shut down production temporarily, but Anyway, it's actually happening. They've got actors cast and everything. So the fans have come out of the woodwork. And I thought I've always wanted to start a YouTube channel. And so I took the two things I love most, animation and uh, the Wheel of Time. And I put them into a YouTube channel and it had really kind of surprising success right up front. And I'm now working on the third video. I'm doing basically like a deep dive series about these books, trying to kind of make them spoiler free for people who are not familiar with it, who will probably be coming to it from the TV show. And then I hope to do like episode breakdowns and that sort of thing. So uh, where could people find uh, your YouTube channel if they're, they're fans of the series and want to go see your thoughts in more depth? Yeah. So the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash C slash unraveling the pattern. The name of the channel, if you just search unraveling the pattern, or if you go to YouTube and search, what is the wheel of time? You'll probably see my video in the top three or so. Um, and I've got, like I say, I've got a series of videos that I'm making. There are only two out right now. Um, but the fan support has been overwhelming. I started a Patreon. It's been really great. I'm really having a lot of fun with it. Well, and you said you, uh, you're you also doing some animation for that. The last time I saw you regularly in person was in a college uh, animation course. So you know your stuff uh, for that. And you were telling me <laughs> that, you, that you now teach that course, right? That's right. The very course you and I took together. I remember we sat by each other most of the time in that class. But uh yeah, I've been teaching that class for the last 12 years as an adjunct professor, and I've been using Adobe After Effects in my daily work for, I don't know, 15 years now. So it's been great, yeah. All right. Well, for any listeners who don't know The Wheel of Time as well as you do, <laughs> um, it is a high fantasy series of 14 novels as well as a prequel, and we're discussing The Eye of the World, which is the first book in that series, and it was published in 1990 and tells the story of Rand and let's call it a fellowship of friends who must leave the land they knew and gain new allies as they flee from the attacks of Trollocs. That's like your your very opening of the book. Like This is what starts the adventure. Um, and Trollocs yeah. are kind of what, like, like man beast hybrids that serve the dark one in this world. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could even say that this book is heavily influenced by the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. And that was very intentional yeah. by Robert Jordan. So you could think of Trollocs as sort of like orcs. Oh yes, really. definitely. Yeah. It's hard to dip your toe into the high fantasy world and not come out with a lot of, 
um, Lord of the Rings at this point. Absolutely. It is such a defining text for that genre. Um, And I've definitely read some texts that feel derivative of it. And in this one, I could see the echoes. Um, That's why I had, you know, like we've we've both referenced Fellowship already. Um, You you can see the echoes, but it didn't feel like uh, a cheaper version of Lord of the Rings, which... I've tested out some high fantasy series that I found a little, little lacking uh, in innovation. This one has enough of its own world building that um, the generic elements that uh, are, are being, um, you know, that, that, that are shared with Lord of the Rings. uh, They don't feel, they don't make it feel lesser. It makes it feel like, okay, now I know some of what to expect, uh, but there's enough twists and turns and its own, its own mythology and other elements that definitely make it stand apart. Yeah, and believe me, as the series progresses, he departs very heavily from that. As a matter of fact, the second book already gets very far from what The Lord of the Rings is. And he he was uh, quoted as saying that he basically wanted to make it familiar to people who had read The Lord of the Rings when he started, but that his intent was to veer away from that. And that really shows, I mean, you can't just copy Lord of the Rings for 12 or 15 books right so (laughs) he had to have some original ideas (laughs) well like i said in in this one already you can you can tell uh what some of those elements are that are are um his own uh within this and uh, and like all stories that are taking place in a known genre there's a familiarity that brings comfort to the viewer and some of like i know i like this stuff but you also need enough that's innovative and unique and special to make it not feel derivative of the right. you know our our uh, shared cultural understanding of what you know of the text that define that genre. So for high fantasy, the text that defines the genre is very much Lord of the Rings. And so if if yes. you're picking up a book that's being marketed as high fantasy and it doesn't have some stuff that feels familiar to Lord of the Rings, it would it it wouldn't feel right. Like like that's the way genres work. Is exactly. you want some of that familiarity with it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, a breakdown of some of the characters real quick before uh, we, we jump into the trivia. Uh, there's Rand, Matt, and Perrin, who are young men of about the same age, who may be the target that caused uh, the Dark One to send Trollocs to attack their village. Then, a- And I listened to the audiobook, um, and so I... I think I'm going to pronounce these right because I, you know, listened to 20 plus no hours problem. of these names. But I, it was my only exposure was one time through on, on an audiobook. So if I mispronounce anything or I'm not doing the <laughs> fandom pronunciation, you let me know, Lauren. So there's okay, Egwene, <laughs> is that right? Uh, sure. Uh, who you know? It's, who, what's funny is the the. Oh, sorry. Let me let me just say, as far as pronunciation goes, there's a whole lot of story behind that as well. Robert Jordan has pronunciation glossaries at the back of each book. But he also sort of um, didn't like people just kind of read it however they read it. And then the people who did the audiobooks were given no instruction whatsoever. So they actually were wrong in many of the books, which is pretty funny. Oh, okay. And so to this day, <laughs> almost everyone pronounces everything differently and it's kind of just accepted. I think with the TV show coming out, if it does well, I think those pronunciations will sort of become normalized, hopefully. But. You, however you say it is fine. I probably won't correct you and I'll probably say things differently. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, good to know as a little um, setting the table for this discussion. So there's a Gawain who is yeah. a, a, a young woman from their village and she and Rand had a little flirtation uh, before they end up on this journey together. And she may have some untapped mystical talent, untapped mystical talent, maybe a theme as I run through some of these characters. Um, yes. And then there's, 
Nynaeve, I believe is how it was said, mm-hmm. uh, who's a little older than yeah. those three. And, and she is what was called the village wisdom, which is sort of like a semi mystical wise woman and healer. Um, that uh, it seems like many of the villages in, in this fantasy world have um, someone who's referred to as the wisdom. Uh, there's mm-hmm. Moraine, uh, who is a trained mystical character. She's uh, it's called an Aes Sedai, I believe is what they uh, said. Or Aes Sedai. Yep. Aes Sedai. Yep. Yes. So uh, there's a whole order of trained mystical people, and she's one of them who are called the Aes Sedai. And she's kind of the mentor uh, magical figure. Think a bit of the Gandalf role. And uh, there is Lan. What was that? Yep, that's right. Gandalf. She's kind of the Gandalf for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lan Mandragoran, who is Moraine's warder, who is basically a super awesome bodyguard, bit of a strider, like strong, silent type, very, very capable in battle with a mysterious past, possibly royal, also tapping into some of the strider feelings there. And I, again, when I'm, I'm putting these out, I don't want this to feel like it's derivative. I, It's just uh, <laughs> part of the tropes of high fantasy. Yep. And then uh, Tom, was it Tom Merlin or Tom Marilyn? Now I can't remember. Marilyn, right? Yeah, Tom Marilyn. Yep. Uh, is a, he was called a Gleeman and it was just kind of like a, a bard or storyteller, um, but like a trained, very highly skilled uh, wandering uh, storyteller. Uh, and these are uh, the characters who kind of form this group in the story. So that's who we're going to be talking about as we break down um, the first book in The Wheel of Time. But before we do that, a little bit of trivia. Um, this is going to be very light trivia because with such um, an expansive series and such a deep fandom, there's a lot of trivia you could get into. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of skip across the surface some here. So Robert Jordan is the pen name of James Oliver Rigney Jr. Under various pen names, he also wrote uh, several Conan, Conan the Barbarian books, some historical fiction, a Western, and I saw dance criticism listed in his <laughs> yep. in his um, uh, on, on his Wikipedia page and a couple other places. I'm like, okay, well, you know, if, if you want to write it, uh, <laughs> you can get someone to publish it. So uh, Robert Jordan, we'll just refer to him as Robert Jordan, though. Uh, he passed away before completing the Wheel of Time series, and Brandon Sanderson took over and completed the series based on uh, the partially completed manuscript and notes that Jordan had for the finale of the series. And um, my understanding is uh, it was always said it would. there's only one book remaining, and then when Brandon Sanderson got a look at all the notes, they, he and the estate and the publisher all said, mm, this is more like three books, isn't it, <laughs> at this point? <laughs> Rather than yeah, one single. Exactly. And it wasn't like we're stretching one storyline into three. Like those were three very large books. Is that right, Lauren? Yes. And actually, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of other interesting things here, but um, you know, Robert Jordan's wife was also his editor. She's the one who edited uh, Ender's game years before. And Mm -hmm. so she's been one of the biggest editors for tour books. And um, he, when he initially tried to sell this to tour books, he said it was going to be, a, I think a six book series. Now, I, as you probably learned reading this first book, he's a very wordy author. He's very descriptive. And so a six book series became a eight book series, became a 10 book series, became a, he, he wrote the 11th book and then he, he vowed that he was going to finish it with the 12th book. And then sadly he did pass away. And the funny thing is those last three books are the most action-packed, plot-driven. So much happens in those last three books. If he had written them, they may have been six books. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And you already mentioned that Amazon and well, like Sony's producing an adaptation for Amazon um, as uh, a streaming television series uh, that Mm -hmm. began production in fall of 2019. I couldn't find exactly if it had been paused. I assumed it had. You said it has been delayed because of COVID-19. But in I I remember hearing some of the stories around Wheel of Time adaptations just as someone who enjoys geeky entertainment and does enjoy fantasy even though i didn't know the series i saw lots of headlines uh and strange headlines about adaptations of the wheel of time uh, there is and as i started yeah. digging into it a bit for the trivia there could be a whole book written about attempts to adapt wheel of time into various media because right. it is a long strange history um including this is the one i remember uh was fxx so like a a smaller sister channel of fx aired a half hour pilot for wheel of time series with no promotion, no fanfare. just some people spotted it and said, what in the world is this? And it was a half hour (laughs) pilot because uh, the production company had a clause that they had to get something on the air by a certain time or the rights were going to revert. So they produced by all accounts, a fairly poor pilot. (laughs) Um, That is correct. And then paid, paid FSX for a half hour of airtime in the middle of the night, basically, and just ran this so they could say that they had moved forward on production so they would retain the rights. Right. Uh, it was and, essentially and then, an infomercial slot that they paid for. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when networks are like, if anyone wants to put anything on here, just just send us the check and it'll go on here. Um, and <laughs> then tried to claim that they had moved forward on production so they were retaining the rights. And then I saw, like, there were lawsuits that, that came after that and some settlements. And then a little bit after that is when Sony and uh, Amazon announced that the series was going to be coming, uh, coming to their streaming service. (laughs) And uh, last bit of trivia. uh, Since 2009, there's been an annual convention held in Georgia called Jordan con, which is a wheel of time fan convention. So for a book series that has never had a major film or TV um, uh, adaptation to, really expand the fandom out to maintain an annual fan convention just for the books. To me, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah. As you know, it's interesting. That was supposed to, the convention was supposed to start today, but unfortunately because of COVID-19, it was canceled. And so they're doing the convention for the first time online and anyone is invited. And so actually I intend for the next few days to be involved with just kind of watching the different panels and being a part of that, which I'm excited for. So Oh, oh, that's that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they're going to be able to do this year. There's lots of people scrambling to find out what they're going to do uh, for for planned yeah. events uh, in early 2020 here. All right. Well, listeners, before we move on to the full summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. Well, okay, there's no new films and trailers. And also we play an annual (laughs) uh, fantasy box office game that is on hold at the moment. But we will talk about uh, newer media that we've been reading reading or listening to or watching and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss so before i jump into this full uh summary of the first book lauren is there any trivia that you feel like uh just needs needs to be shouted out well you know like you said there's so much that can be talked about my concern here is um this series is so jam-packed with story and character moments and all the stuff that if you haven't read the books, 
um, we'll, we'll be spoiling the first book, but we're not going to go too deep into the other books. And I'm going to try myself to keep things vague. Um, but just know that when you look online, <laughs> you can be <laughs> spoiled. And so you look online with caution if you're searching for things um, when it comes but to the Wheel of Time. Yeah, that's a good warning. So I have only listened to the first audiobook. I have the second one uh, that I'll be starting very shortly um, on on my Audible account already. I can already tell where several of my credits uh, <laughs> in the coming <laughs> coming year are going to be going um, on Audible. Uh, so I can't spoil more, but uh, I appreciate your warning because in looking up uh, the uh, character names and backgrounds. I was very careful and I could already tell like, Oh, this one character description is about to go somewhere. I don't want to go. And so like I bailed out after reading right. the first line um, and that sort of thing. So if, uh, if you're interested in wheel of time, I would suggest just starting in on the, on the book series. Um, all right, here is uh, the full summary. The main characters live in a classic pre-industrial revolution fantasy setting. Uh, in this case, it's a village or an area of land called the Two Rivers. A city festival is coming up and everyone is excited. But the night before the festival, Rand and his father are attacked by Trollocs, which are human-beast hybrids who serve the Dark One. Rand thought these creatures were myths. He's heard of them in stories, but he did not think they're real. But they are definitely real. Uh, Rand and his father are able to escape. The Rand's father is, ba is badly injured. Um, they live on a farm but Rand is able to drag his father back to the city um, but when, as he gets close the damage makes it clear that the Trollocs attacked there as well Rand tries to get his father healed by the city Wisdom who is named uh, Nine, uh, is it Nynaeve? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, that's right, Nynaeve In classic fantasy fashion some extra vowels are inserted in some of these names Um <laughs> Uh, but Nynaeve looks at Rand's father and says there's no hope for him. However, a mysterious visitor named Moraine is able to he heal Rand's father's wounds. She is an Aes Sedai, a woman who has been trained to wield magical powers. She and her warder, uh, Lan Mandragoran, warn that three young men seem to have been the targets of the Trolloc attacks. Rand, Matt, and Perrin. Hoping to lead any future attacks away from their village, those three agree to accompany Moraine and Lan as they go to a city called Tarvalon to seek help in finding out why these three young men would be targeted by the Dark One. And it's clear, um, like, Moraine has some some theories that she's not sharing with them about <laughs> why, why they might be. There's Absolutely. hints to larger mythology in a lot of this that happens. Can uh, I break in real, bard... real quick here? Mm-hmm. Can I break in real quick here? So there's actually a prequel novel that I should have mentioned earlier that Robert Jordan wrote called New Spring. And that actually takes place 20 years earlier. It's all about Moraine and Lan. And a lot of people who are new to the series think they should start with the prequel. But I'd recommend that you start with this book, the first book, uh, The Eye of the World, simply because New Spring kind of gives away some of Moraine's mysterious knowledge and other things it kind of ruins the mystery of the first book for me so oh okay well i i followed your advice without uh, having heard it yet so <laughs> I'm, I'm glad um, at this point, a wandering bard named Tom, who had been in the village for the festival, joins with this group. And when the boy's friend, uh, Aguin, catches them leaving, she also forces her way into the group. Uh, on their journey, Rand, Matt, and Perrin all begin having similar dreams involving the Dark One taunting them. Nynaeve catches up to the group and demands that uh, everyone who came from the Two Rivers return home. When they explain why that's impossible, she joins with them as well. On their journey, the group takes refuge in the abandoned ruins of a city that was called Shadar Logoth, 
Uh, like young headstrong idiots, Rand, Matt, and Perrin go to explore the ruins after they'd been warned not to. Uh, they meet a man named Mordith who offers them a hidden treasure if they will help him. They see the treasure and it's very tempting, uh, but they eventually realize this is probably a bad idea and they try to leave and Mordith tries to kill them and they all barely escape. The Trollocs and other servants of the Dark One nearly capture the group, and they're only able to escape by desperately fleeing to a river that they try to cross. In their flight, the group breaks up into three smaller groups, and they get separated from each other. So first, we're going to tell what happens to Rand, Matt, and Tom. Uh, And they're able to find a ship on the river and get passage to a city called Whitebridge. Matt, who was the goofball of the group at the beginning of the novel, is getting super moody and dark and emo. Rand realizes that Matt stole a dagger from the treasure at Shadar Logoth. So he's carrying some piece of dark uh, treasure uh, with him and it seems to be affecting his personality. At Whitebridge, they are attacked and Tom creates a distraction that allows Rand and Matt to escape and they believe there's no way that Tom survived this attack. Though everyone that they tell this to says, "Mm, Tom's probably alive unless you've seen a body. So uh, knowing (laughs) that the next major stop on their trip was the capital city called uh, Camlin, Rand and Matt make their slow, depressed way there. Eventually in Camlin, they go to an inn that Tom had told them about. The innkeeper definitely has a history with Tom and agrees to keep Rand and Matt there while they wait for any surviving members of their group to come to the city. Matt is extra moody and he spends all day, every day in bed. Rand, though, uh, goes out out and explores and he has a little adventure that sees him accidentally fall inside of the castle walls where he is found by Elaine who is a young woman who happens to be the next in line to the throne to become queen of everything as far as Rand knows basically. Uh, While Elaine is very nice to Rand, the palace guard are not quite so kind and he's taken to the queen who declares that there's no cause to imprison Rand and he is released outside of the castle walls and he goes back to the inn. Group number two is Aguin and Perrin who make it across the river and then wander in some open lands for a while before they come across a man named Elias. Elias seems to be able to communicate with wolves. And after meeting him, a power seems to wake up in Perrin and he realizes that he also seems to be able to communicate with wolves, though he's not wild about that and tries to suppress it. Elias introduces them to a group called the uh, Tuaf, on <laughs> there's some extra apostrophes in some yeah, of these but... fantasy words as well <laughs> <laughs> and uh they are a peaceful and nomadic group um very much a uh a fantasy uh kind of like gypsy troop vibe that comes from them uh, they stay with the Tuathan for a time, but eventually move on. They run into a group of soldiers who are called the Children of the Light. And when one of the, and this very much feels like religious crusaders. Is that accurate? Like we don't see a whole lot of yeah, them in absolutely. this novel. But the. Yeah, they're the, they're the religious, they're the zealots basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and when one of the soldiers uh, of the Children of the Light kills a wolf, Perrin, who is way more wolf communicative, uh, communicative than he realized before this, he goes into like a Wolverine like berserker rage and he kills two soldiers. If I can uh, borrow from Marvel Comics instead of just Lord of the Rings and <laughs> describing some of it. <laughs> uh, eventually, Perrin and Aguin are taken prisoner and are in for a very uncomfortable life as the soldiers believe they are friends of the Dark One. Uh, so group number three is the uh, uh, the three that we had left, Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve. Moraine is able to track Perrin 
to the Children of the Light's camp. Working together, Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve are able to rescue Perrin and Egwene, and they all flee together. They travel to Camelin, uh, where they meet up with Matt and Rand. Moraine quickly diagnoses Matt's issues uh, with the dagger, what's happening to him, why his personality is changing, and she is able to limit the influence that this magical artifact will have on him, though she cannot sever the bond completely. And Matt starts to be a little bit more his uh, goofy self. So putting together clues from everyone's stories and things that they've overheard, Moraine believes that there is an imminent threat to a place called the Eye of the World, a threat that could lead to the Dark One being released from his imprisonment. Using a dangerous magical route called the Ways, they're able to travel to a city called Shinar, which is near Mm -hmm. the Eye of the World. Though the city fears attacks from Trollocs imminently, uh, they trust uh, Moraine and the Aes Sedai fully, and they offer soldiers to go uh, with the group and protect them as they make their way to the Eye of the World but Moraine refuses any help. To reach the Eye of the World, they must travel through the Blight. Eventually, they do reach this Eye of the World, which is like um, like a, a essentially a Garden of Eden in the middle of a desert. <laughs> it's the way it kind of right. comes, comes across here. Um, and there they meet the Green Man, who is the guardian of the Eye of the World, and he's this very positive uh good uh mystical being uh however two forsaken dark friends uh have broken from their own imprisonments the dark one's not out but some of his most loyal followers are breaking out of imprisonment at this time and they're able to enter the eye and kill the green man rand is able to channel the one power which is the power that gives moraine and wisdoms uh their power in the novel but men rarely are able to use the power without being corrupted so women can use the power uh without becoming evil but Anytime uh, in the stories that a man uses this one power, they become corrupted through a lot of luck, uh, more than knowing what he's doing or even planning to do what he's doing. Rand is able to kill the dark friends in the eye and travels to save a Shionar from the Trolloc army and destroys the whole Trolloc army. Then he returns to the eye and has saved the day, but may have stepped down a path of evil corruption by wielding this power. The end. Mm-hmm. Very good. Oh, thank you. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> to summarize. I think I hit all the beats. <laughs> um, but yeah, like really you said, did. Robert I mean, Jordan, yeah, his prose is heavy. It's a dense. It's a dense novel. Well, not only that, but you know, one of the things that Robert Jordan was absolutely a master of is foreshadowing. And there are so many things that uh, even in your summary, you you probably said that you don't realize the significance of it yet, which is kind of for me, a lot of the fun of this series is there's so much to theorize or to theorize and talk about. And as sad as it is that Robert Jordan passed because he passed, people continue to theorize and argue about this series all the time because we don't have official it's, you know how JK Rowling sort of is constantly clarifying things for people and changing some of her backstory and other things. Robert Jordan isn't around to do that. And so it's caused this ongoing discussion that's part of the great fun of the series. Obviously, many, many things happen throughout the course of the series. And there is a great conclusion to the series, but there's also still so much to talk about. That ending scene in The Eye of the World, where Rand, as you said, he just sort of gets lucky and is able to do these things without knowing what he's doing. That is all extremely significant later and does come into play. And that's kind of the fun of it is it's, it's sort of meant to be confusing for a first time reader, I think. And that's the brilliance of Robert Jordan. He just thought it all out, you know? And there are definitely seeds being cast like narrative seeds that are not, they don't sprout in this story, but 
knowing that this is a massive series, knowing that he had planned sequels, like you can say, okay, I, I know that's something that we're going to circle back to. <laughs> um, even as a, right. a first time reader, um, you, you can spot some of those. Uh, and I'm sure there are also several that I, that I miss. Um, and maybe even like if I go on and listen to like the second, third, fourth books, uh, like I, I can enjoy those stories. But then if I come back to the first one, I, I'll see even more, uh, you know, things, things that, that are popping this time. And this is so why you've this series the whole- has, yeah, it has a really great reread um, retention rate, I guess you could call it. I mean, there are a lot of mm-hmm. people who go back to the series again and again and again because there are so many tiny little nuggets um, and foreshadowing. And some of them are very on the nose. You know, you'll meet people who can like see the future and they'll say cryptic things to you. Um, you know, they'll see symbols floating over your head or whatever. You know, there's some scenes like that that happened with the characters in this book. There are other times when people have dreams and those dreams are sort of foreshadowing things to come. And all of this is um, based around this concept of this wheel of time where history repeats over and over. And because history repeats, it's all laid out in some people's eyes and some people are able to see what has happened before and what will happen again. So there's this sort of recurring idea of time happening, things happening over and over. There's this idea of resurrection, which happens where you're reborn into, into a new life over and over throughout the turning of the wheel of time throughout these ages that occur. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating stuff. There's even um, just getting into some of the themes that you're able to see in the first book. And I assume these get developed even more um, like within the mythology, there's this interesting mix of um a sense of like predestination or preordination or things that are out of the character's control. And the, they're always saying things like the, the wheel, we, you know, the, what is it? The wheel weaves. Oh, yeah. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills there. There it is. And so like whatever's happening is what has to happen because this is the grand scheme of time. But there's also very much a sense of personal responsibility to act like just because <laughs> these there's a, a sense of some a guiding force. It doesn't mean that these characters are lacking in agency uh, in, in what they choose right. to do. And there's a lot of thought and effort and time that's put into making the right choice. Uh, it, it's not just saying, Oh, uh, you know, the, the wheel is spinning. So wherever that lands is what we're going to do. Um, there's a sense of personal responsibility as they also are acknowledging that there's some stuff that's out of our control. And there does seem to be a cycle here. Yeah, that's, that's a very good, good observation. And that's something that Robert Jordan, I mean, that's a major theme of course, is, you know, how much of what, what we do is about free will and how much of it is predetermined in the world that he built, you could argue that it's all predetermined and yet agency or the ability to choose is absolutely one of the biggest and most important themes of the series. And another interesting theme about the series is this idea of duality. There's a difference between, there's obviously the classic fantasy trope of good and evil, but then you've also got um, female magic and male magic. And there's this, and you mentioned this as, as well in your summary, but there's this thing that happened thousands of years earlier, where essentially the dark one, before he was imprisoned, he um, tainted or poisoned the male half of the magic. And so now any male who uses the magic in this world will go insane and will cause great destruction and will potentially kill or hurt lots of people. And women channelers is what they call them. These Aes Sedai, these women who can use this power, the one power they've spent the last 3000 years 
hunting down and stopping men from being able to use the power because of the destruction that they will eventually cause. And now there are these prophecies that when the dark one returns, someone from the previous age, 3000 years earlier, the very person who attempted to imprison the dark one and sort of half failed at it will be reborn. And that this reborn savior will essentially go mad again and break the world. And so, and this is obviously major spoilers um, for the books, but it, it, you know, you, you kind of come to realize at the end of the first book that Rand is this supposed savior of the world who's been reborn to save the world. And now he has to deal with the fact that he can use the one power and will eventually go mad and potentially kill a lot of innocent people. And so there's also these really great ideas with um, sort of like responsibility. There's sort of like ethics in the choices that he makes because he has to use the magic to fulfill certain prophecies, but by doing it, he's sort of dooming himself and the world. Um, and there are some other really cool things like that. Um, I was curious, Joe, for you, what, what were some of your favorite moments in the book? What were some of the things that you, you sort of appreciated? Um, I, I left some of them out of the summary because they're quieter moments that don't drive the plot. Um, but there's a character that I left out pretty much entirely. Or yeah, I, I left him out of the summary. It's, um, I can't even remember his name, but he, he's, uh, is, is it an O O Ogier? Ogier. Yeah. Loyal, Ogier. loyal or loyal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where Rand has these kind of, uh, quiet conversations with, another fantastical being who he thought didn't exist was just a made up storybook character of kind of a giant ogre type. Um, and they have really fascinating intellectual conversations that aren't great in a, in a plot summary <laughs> to, to try and uh, include here. Right. But there are those, those times when the characters kind of stop and talk about things were for me, some of the parts where I felt like more investment uh, into the story uh, that was happening. That's that's great, especially because you know those are exposition dumps, right? That he's mm -hmm. there are these info dumps where Robert Jordan has to try to get all this stuff out to try yeah, to build his the mythology, world. yeah, the backstory, right? But he does a great job. Well, I mean, it's definitely can get wordy, but it does a great job of making it conversational, and it's new to the character, so it's it's also new to us. So the character sort of asks the same questions that we would ask if we were in that situation. And then you bring in these characters like Loyal, who is this giant, he's essentially, like you said, kind of like a giant ogre type creature who's very gentle and loves books and loves learning. And he's he's one of my favorite characters by far. Uh, yeah, and there's, I, I, I think as, as I, um, as a, I've been like digesting storytelling a lot and, and thinking about how storytelling happens. Um, and I love pop culture, but I, I I think we've had a shift towards so much the uh, plot driven pop culture that doesn't allow for those moments of making you care about the characters. Like those stopping and having those conversations is right. where you start to care about the stakes. Um, often we're just pushing the stakes higher and higher and higher, but we don't like like it's all it's all just fluff on the screen or uh, on, on uh, you know in a book. If it's all just plot all the time, you need to make us care about the characters who are experiencing the plot. Um in order yeah, exactly. for those stakes to have relevance for us. And I think Robert Jordan did a great job of for each character giving enough, even if it was 
hinting at at stuff uh, like Tom was uh, like he's a great fascinating character you don't find out his whole backstory but you're you know there's more backstory there and even in this first book you're meant to not assume he's dead <laughs> you're, you're meant to believe right. you're going to see more Tom and find out more of that backstory uh, as, as you continue on in the series um, but you in the moments that we have with him he's a fully rounded character right like like yes he could just be the showman that that is there to goof off but you find out he's actually a really good fighter like why why is he so good at fighting oh he's he like he understands um so much about the way this world works and um and uh like different customs and different social interactions that he's able to teach uh again as like an info dump and a way of of teaching rand but also teaching the reader uh what this world is really like and some of the functions of it he he served as a really good mouthpiece for that and when he died in air quotes like you felt it as a reader like, you're like oh I, I like that character right and especially because too he he was the only thing kind of keeping those boys from going completely i mean they they were so scared out of their minds he was sort of like that solid pillar they had to hang on to and then you know when when he dies then they're like now what do we do and they go through what feels like months of misery now it's not very clear how many weeks or days pass from you know from that point when he dies to when they make it to the city but it feels long in the books and that's intentional there's even a bit in the books as they're walking down the road where there's a scene where they're in the back of a wagon some farmers giving them a, a ride and then that scene is repeated again later and it's a little bit jarring to be like didn't i read this already but robert jordan jordan did that intentionally to kind of make you feel the same sort of confusion that the boys are feeling at that time. You know, like what day is it? What's going on? Everything's kind of blending mm -hmm. together. And I've been feeling that uh, a lot personally, just with this uh, COVID-19 <laughs> quarantine, right? It's like, what day is it? What's going on? Didn't we just do this yesterday? You know? <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I feel like I can relate day. to it. <laughs> a little yeah, feeling exactly. to, to life. Well, and I think it's actually a really clever thing narrative wise when you're splitting up a group and they're all like their, their stories are ha happening simultaneously but we're, we're bouncing between them it's really smart to have a little bit of hand waviness about how much time is passing because right like it, it, you don't want to have to like get locked into saying like here's day one for each of the groups here's day two because that that gets tedious when you're trying to align it like even if you have it in your head you you want to just kind of like move along uh, to the key plots. And then if you try and line up those, because if this, you know, becomes a text that's obsessed, you know, has obsessive fans, you might just say, there's some discrepancies in how like these timelines, like famously uh, Empire Strikes Back, everyone's favorite yes. Star Wars movie. The timelines make no sense. If you start to say like, how long was Luke training with Yoda <laughs> on Dagobah while Han and Leia hit on an asteroid field that went to Bespin and were immediately captured. <laughs> like it seems like one right. storyline is so 12 hours and the other one is three weeks, but you don't really care because there's a little bit of this time hand waviness of just saying, okay, we're, we're moving on. Uh, and, and you get propelled by the narrative. Uh, so, so yeah, just saying this is really plotting for this group and a lot of time is passing, but also they're just walking every day and maybe stopping to do chores to try and earn some food. Um, when they can yeah. like that, that kind of drudgery could feel like forever. If it was one week or it could feel like forever, if it was a month. Right. I, yeah. And you know, people have gone through of course, and mapped it out and the, the entire series takes place in the course of like two years, but it doesn't feel that way because I remember waiting two years for one book. 
<laughs> you know? And so for me, two years had passed while I was waiting for the next bit of the story. Um, and so I remember hearing that after, after, you know, Robert Jordan passed away, I remember hearing, well, it's only been about two years since the eye of the world. And I'm thinking there's just no way. I mean, so much has happened. These characters have grown so much. In the meantime, I've gone through my teenage years and now I'm like a young adult, you know, and I'm like, I'm realizing, oh, maybe I feel like my life has gone on, but this story is actually quite compact. So there's a, um, you know, some people refer to some of the later books as what they call the, the slog, which is in my opinion, something that um, scares away a lot of new readers, but there are a few books sort of in the middle part of the series that feel like the story slows down a bit, but it's because Robert Jordan is trying to give these characters more time to develop. He doesn't want to just rush through the story. Um, and so I think book 10 takes place, the entire book takes place over the course of maybe like a month, but it hits on so many different characters and so many minor plots that need to be dealt with to sort of get things set up for the ending. And it's actually one of the best character developed books um, in the series, even though it doesn't feel like much happens, you know? <laughs> so I think audiobooks are actually a great way to go when uh, you're reading the series, because you can kind of just let it happen, uh, you know, as as you listen. You don't have to feel like you're slogging through these books sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. Well, like I, I highlighted that some of my favorite parts in this first book were some of those character moments. And you need those in a book. But then I think also when the way the series plays out, like you've got the micro level of each individual book, 14 books. Uh, but then you have the macro story. And so it sounds like some of the books in the macro story become some of those like breathe and meet the characters and, uh, and not dealing with the, right. the, the big world shaking uh, turns of events, but some of the more personal uh, turns of events uh, in uh, th that are going to find some of the characters as they're heading towards their finale. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the TV show is coming out and everyone who's a fan of the books is, I mean, frankly, there's this sense of fear from a lot of the fandom right now. And I've been <laughs> sort of, I've had my hand on that pulse for a while everyone's scared that they're going to either rush through the story and not take the time, like you're saying, to kind of let us get to know the characters and make us invested in the characters. There's fear that they're, they're going to exclude this one thing that I, you know, I'm going to die on this hill. If they, if they don't include this thing, then I'm not going to watch the show. There are a lot of people talking about this. I watched a video today um, from a YouTuber. In their opinion, they said, I don't even mind if they cut out important plot details as long as they stay true to the characters. And to me, that's the, really the strength of this series. These characters become very likable. You know, Matt in the first book is kind of the village idiot, the village goofball. And he kind of, ha as you mentioned, he has this sort of emo storyline where he kind of gets dark and depressed. And he's not the most likable character for the first two or three books. But by the end of the third book, he's basically almost everyone's favorite character. And he becomes the best character in the series. And so... You you really do need these these moments to breathe and to just learn about these individuals. And th for me, they I feel like they're real people because they've been a part of my life for so long. You know, that fear of adaptation is something that I think anyone who loves a text in its original form, but also wants it to find the wider audience that television and film absolutely do reach than novels or comic books. But there is always that kind of like ah, oh, but but don't 
don't hurt it. <laughs> you know, as you're, I know. As, I find uh, myself like, very And scared. there's like the fear of like, if it's, if it's a bad version of it that everyone sees, they're going to think the books were bad and everyone who liked it had no taste. Like there's also like, don't, don't make me wrong right. for having loved this in everyone else's eyes. Like I still know the thing that I love. And certainly as, as someone who's been heavily invested in both comic books and, and Harry Potter, like I understand the fear you're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I loved the Harry Potter books and I loved the movies for different reasons. And I, there were parts of some of the movies that disappointed me. And I'm hoping that I can sort of separate myself. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that I can remember this is an adaptation. This is someone else's vision of what they think of the Wheel of Time. And then they've converted it to television for a wider audience. I have to keep reminding myself of that. I know I'm not going to be 100% satisfied with it, but for me personally, I'm, I'm genuinely hoping that the show becomes popular enough that my YouTube channel becomes more popular and I can invest even more time into this. And so I just want it to be good enough to retain an audience and to mm-hmm. see it till the end. I mean, that would be amazing. By the time they get to, you know, book 14, there's just no way it's going to ma- match the books. You know, it's going to be impossible. But I really hope yeah. that they can at least stay true to the characters. That's the most important thing to me. So. I mean, the nature of adaptation is using the strengths of a different style of storytelling, which, um, you know, novels could be very strong in providing a lot of backstory in a way that feels fairly natural, that is often hard in translating to performance on a screen. Um, like, right. like info dumps in a book, you can you can burn through. And like you said, sometimes it can feel tedious, but you can burn through it and you just kind of know this is this is what's happening in the book. But if a character like sits down and gives a giant monologue on screen for eight minutes, explaining <laughs> the mythology of a world <laughs> like yeah, you that, can't do that. It, it, it's, it's not the strength of that style of storytelling, right? So, so much of it is going to have to change in terms of how backstory of the world, how, you know, how the world building gets done in film has to be so different than how world building is done in a novel, right. but then also how character is revealed, like the internal thoughts of characters, don't get revealed very smoothly on screen. Um, I mean, obviously there's tricks of, or or, or strengths of like character acting and camera work and, you know, all the, the mise-en-scene and everything that can imply things for, for the viewer, but it's different Mm -hmm. than reading exactly what the character's thinking in a moment in a novel. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that I've been curious how they're going to adapt is the, uh, the idea of being able to talk to wolves, the way that parents sort of learns that he can maybe communicate with these animals and how it's all very much an internal monologue sort of visions become thoughts kind of a thing. Like how, in, how in the world are they going to um, adapt that in a way that's satisfying? I don't know. It could be real hokey. I, I watched some of those twilight movies and the, when the wolves talk, it's some of the cheesiest stuff I've ever seen. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know how they're going to go about doing this, but uh, you know, I, my fingers are crossed that they know what they're doing and, you know, and no matter what, we always have the books. That's what I keep telling myself. If if they completely botch the story in the show and it doesn't do well, well, the books aren't going anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that helps me sleep at night. <laughs> I think it's an important lesson that all fans could could use. <laughs> and, yeah. And also, if there's an adaptation you don't care for, you don't need to go attack the people that are involved in it on Twitter or social media. That's It's not really going to benefit anyone. Right. Now, um, I don't know how much you followed Game of Thrones, but... You know, Game of Thrones, when it started out, it was a great adaptation of the books from my point of view. And they, one of the things they really focused on was the characters and the character development. And that's what made it so great. And unfortunately, as they ran out of material to adapt because the series hadn't been finished, 
um, they did sort of rush the last couple seasons, especially that last season. And that left a, a bitter taste in many people's mouths, myself included. I, I was pretty disappointed with how that series ended, considering how well it started. And so I, I think it really just is an important lesson to remember. It's the characters that matter. If you stay true to the characters, you can almost get away with anything in the plot. But if you just rush and get rid of all that important character stuff, or you make characters do things that go against the very character you've established, um, that's going to leave people, you know, upset or or unhappy. I think overall, though, even Game of Thrones book fans were fans of the show for quite a while. So that's an impressive job they did to to kind of grab both audiences, you know. Well, and I think if if HBO had not created the the cultural conversation around Game of Thrones and this adaptation and uh, had some of their highest ratings ever, I don't know that Amazon be throwing as much money as they are at the Wheel of Time adaptation. Like they are definitely chasing right. <laughs> some of uh, the hype that Game of Thrones created in pop culture. Yeah, and that's another concern is, you know, uh, Game of Thrones is definitely kind of like a hard R. It's meant for adults. And I'm not necessarily unhappy with that, but I, in my opinion, the Wheel of Time is a little lighter than that. Um, there are moments of violence, certainly, in the Wheel of Time, but as far as like language and sex, it's much less than Game of Thrones. And I can't mm-hmm. help but feel like they're probably going to be chasing that Game of Thrones audience. They'll probably be increasing some of that for the adaptation, which I'm not, um, I mean, I'm expecting that. But I, I, again, they just got to stay true to the characters. You know, the characters are these sort of naive little farm boys and farm girls who don't really know anything about the world. And I hope that they can capture that at least at the start. So on this podcast, we like to talk about great characters. Um, As much as you can, keeping it to book one, do you have a favorite character from this story Uh, (laughs) in, uh, in um, the, what was What was the name of the, the eye of the world? I keep calling it the wheel of time, but I know that's the whole series. Um, so yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite character from the story that we get in the eye of the world? You know, I think I I love Tom Marilyn's character. I think he's, he's great. And you find out sort of early on in the series or in the book that he is, um, it's a little odd that he's so willing to stay with the group and kind of help the boys out. But then you find out that he had a nephew who was, um, got caught up in some Aes Sedai scheming or plot and he ended up dying. And so Tom is actually, he sees his nephew and these young men and he wants to help them because of that. And to me, I, I really appreciated that about him. He's sort of like the mentor you didn't know you needed. And I, I like that about his character. And then of course, the one you mentioned before, uh, Loyal, the the Ogier, who is knowledgeable, but also weirdly naive about the world as well is he's just like a delightful character. And whenever he's on the screen, on the, on the screen, I say, whenever he's in the books, I love him. He's a great character. Yeah. Uh, definitely enjoyed those. Um, like within this story, you feel even from the beginning that Rand is the protagonist. Um, but you're also, you don't feel like the other characters are getting shortchanged. So I, I appreciate Robert Jordan's effort to make all the men and women in this fellowship feel like they have their own motivations to be there. Um, sometimes, um, in, in these kinds of stories, it's like people joined up because they joined up <laughs> and that's, yeah, you know, that, that's well, it. You uh, know, in a character like Nynaeve's, absolutely Nynaeve's character, you know, she, her, um, uh, motivations are very strong. Like 
I'm kind of like a mother figure to these people. I'm the, I'm the wisdom of their village and I don't like what's happened here and I'm coming back to get them. And then very quickly, she realizes it's not that simple that these boys really are being chased by this evil, uh, dark power. And it's, you know, it's not as black and white as she'd like to believe it is. And eventually she realizes that even she is able to use the one power and that she needs mm -hmm. to receive training. And so she goes through all these complicated um, feelings, even though she's a pretty minor character in the first book. I mean, she's, I think she has maybe one or two actual point of view chapters, but for the most part, she's, she doesn't become a more important character until later. And yet her motivations become very strong and, and are very well thought out. I think, I think every little character in these books, even the little farm like the people in the, in the village at the start, they have these great little personality traits that um, will, you may eventually see again in a future book, which is really great. Yeah. And even like um, Aguin, uh initially if you worry, like is she just there as a love interest for Rand, but pretty early on in the journey, like she finds her own interest in the Aes Sedai and like, she's changing um, some of like her personal habits uh, that she knew from the right. village to become more like the Aes Sedai and like Rand's noticing that and he's not, not super comfortable with it. And she's like, whatever, I want to be more like the Aes Sedai than like the small village people, <laughs> you know, the people who never left the village right. uh, you know, that, I, that I knew before. So uh, the, these characters do, um, e even if their, their initial motivation maybe feels a little surfacey, like th the time is put in to earn reasons for them to be doing what they're doing. Right. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, do you, you asked me if, uh, some of my favorite parts, what are some of your favorite parts in, in this first novel? Boy, it's hard. It's hard because I've read it several times and I, I know so much about what's coming, um, which mm -hmm. and, and some of your favorite parts may change as, as, as you see what right. comes and you realize like the, in, the, the future impact of, of some moments in this first one, you reassess your, your impression right. of, of narrative points. One of the things I love, one of the little sort of, I don't know if you call it an Easter egg, but they're like little nuggets or hints that Robert Jordan gives that I really like in the first book. And I, you know, we've already summarized the whole book. We've already revealed that Rand uses the one power. So I think that's been spoiled. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a scene fairly early on when Egwene is learning how to use the one power and Moraine is teaching her for the first time. And she tells her, there are some people who are born with the ability to touch the one power and use this magic whether or not they want to. It's something that happens. And for the most part, those people die if they are not properly trained. And, and this whole time that she's having this conversation with Egwene, um, Moraine is, Rand is sort of like hiding in the bushes listening. And he's all nervous because he doesn't know if he can trust Moraine. And now this girl that he has this crush on is maybe even promised to, he thinks he's supposed to have married her. She's like more interested in becoming Aes Sedai than anything. Anyway, Moraine tells her when a person first channels without realizing what they're doing, a few days or a week later, they get very sick. They have this weird sort of sick spell. Then when they channel the second time, only, uh, only a day or two pass before they get sick. Then when they channel the third time, they get sick very shortly after. And then the fourth time they channel, they get sick at the same moment. And then from that moment on, they will always channel, but they will no longer get sick. That's something she explains to Egwene. Well, there are many hints of that throughout the book. The first time that Rand channels um, is very early on when they're running on their horses from the two rivers. 
there's this dragon-like creature called a drag car up in the sky chasing them. And Rand is worried about Egwene and her horse. And he is like willing her to not get tired. And you realize later as they're in the village and they've come across those white cloaks or the children of the light for the first time, Rand gets very sick and he gets dizzy and he kind of like falls down. And anyway, you discover, you realize that that was the first time he channeled. He essentially gave Egwene's horse the strength to make the journey. Then he got sick when they were in that little town and met up with the children of the light. Then later, as they're running from Shatter Logoth and they get the groups get separated and Rand jumps onto the boat um, with Tom and Matt, there's some Trollocs chasing them. And just as the Trollocs are about to jump on the boat, the mast from the ship swing or like a, uh, I can't remember if it's a mast or if it's anyway, it's like a big board or something swings by and knocks the Trollocs down. And then uh, just a few days later, Rand gets very dizzy as he's standing on top of this. Um, he's standing at the highest part of the ship and he gets very dizzy and, and like gets sick. And you realize he channeled in that moment when he knocked the Trollocs off and didn't realize it. And then um, when he and Matt are trapped in that village, um, there's no way to escape this room that they're trapped in. There are men banging on the door trying to steal their stuff from them. And suddenly lightning strikes the window and they get out. And you're like, well, that's convenient. Lightning struck the window. Well, no, he channeled. He he needed a way out. And without realizing what he was doing, he used the one power and he made he got a way out. And then he's very sick, uh, like just a day or two later as they're on the road. And then finally, the last time he channels happens, you know, at the eye of the world. And so I, those are the kinds of hints that are really cool to kind of go back and realize, oh, this whole time there were giant arrows pointing at the fact that Rand is using the one power and he um he's probably the destined hero that they all are wondering who it is. Right. It's, it's almost beating beaten over the head <laughs> as you go back and look at it, but it's done in a, such a subtle way that it's kind of brilliant. Uh, those yeah, are the I, types I, of things that I love. And there are thousands of those things to be honest throughout that book, but a lot of them are for later books that I can't spoil. That's a really good example. Cause <laughs> when you were describing it, I was r- catching everything you were describing like, Oh, right, right, right. And when I was listening to the audiobook, I just kind of, you know, went through and like, oh man, he gets sick a lot, but I, I didn't go back right. and connect it to uh, that conversation, which is one of those things that you, you really do need to like to do a reread, I think to, to catch that you know, some of the, some of those Absolutely. connections. And, and like one, I remember that was being set up in this book and never got paid off, but I'm fine with it not being paid off. Cause uh, it, it, you, you get this, it, you get the sense that there's so much more that, that will come. And like, as a patient reader, you, you trust that this will, uh, you know, that the setup will, will deliver in the end is, um, Rand is carrying his father's sword. What, what, what is the call, the name of the sword yeah. or what do they call it? Um, yeah, the Heron Mark, the Heron Marked sword, the Heron Mark sword. And everyone who sees it is like a farmer shouldn't have a Heron Mark sword. And it never gets explained what a Heron Mark sh- sword is in this book. <laughs> um, right. it's just, uh, anyone who sees it is impressed with it and is like, how does someone so young from a backwater town have that sword? And he's just like, it was my dad's. <laughs> and, and that, but that's and, even brilliant because he's, he's asking the same question. He's like, why did my dad have this? Cause he didn't know his dad had it up until that night when he pulled it out of a chest, right? At the start of the books. So when the Trollocs attack, I love that. Yeah. Even the main character is questioning the same thing. We are like, what is the big deal about all this? You know, it's great. Yeah. 
and, and like you kind of keep waiting for someone to give the full explanation, but somehow it doesn't feel unsatisfying for some of those threads to be carried on into the next book. Now, if there was no other book, of course that would be frustrating. Um, and maybe it's just right. that I know that this is a 14 book series that I, I don't mind some of those things being set up and not being paid off inside of a, of a single novel, but it is, I think a move of a master storyteller to be able to introduce so many of these, um, these elements pay off enough of them that you're satisfied with the first book, but also leave you wanting more. And, and that balance, I think sometimes gets too far one way or the other. Like everything gets, gets tied up too neatly or everything gets left for the next book. And that can be frustrating in either case. And this for me struck a really good balance of paying off enough that you're satisfied with the story that was just told, but you also want more to, to you, you want the story to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I, I felt that way every single book. Um, and by the time the books ended, I felt satisfied. I mean, you know, to give Game of Thrones as an example, again, we don't know how the books are going to end. We know how the show ended. Um, that was disappointing to many people, not necessarily the way it ended, but how certain characters suddenly seem to change motivations very quickly to get to that ending. It's almost like they didn't give the right preparation or time to get there. They just rushed to it. And I think knowing that the books ending end in a satisfying way, I mean, the vast majority of people who managed to make it through the books, they're invested to that point. And I really haven't heard anyone who made it through all the books say they didn't like how it ended. My dad read all of them and he loved how they ended. And he doesn't understand the books in the way that I do. He doesn't understand all the details, but he loved the ending. He thought it was great. And so it's exciting for me to know that um, with whatever they do with the show, it will hopefully lead to a satisfying ending. And um, it does still make me question some things. It's not like he tied up everything in a neat little bow and said, it's over. I've resolved every single thing, but he, he tied up the things that mattered and it gives us more to talk about and more to hope for, which is kind of exciting. Of course, Sadly, there will no, no longer be any more books, but it did end. That's the important thing. <laughs> well, Lauren, do you have any final thoughts about the uh, the Wheel of Time that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up this episode? I mean, I'll just say it's it really is a great ride. It's, in my opinion, worth the time. There are going to be certain characters that annoy certain people that's all very understandable. I think a lot of people have a problem with the way Robert Jordan wrote women. Um, I would say if you can stick with it because all of that has a purpose. Um, but I would just say it's, it's worth checking, looking into for sure. Read the first book. If you're still not convinced, I'd say read the second book. The second book is kind of the one that really, makes or breaks fans. And in my opinion, the second book is great. And I loved that book, but some people that's kind of where they were like, yeah, this isn't for me. So I would just say, give it, give it that dedication. And if you're still interested, you're in for a great journey. It's definitely worth the effort. Well, I definitely enjoyed the first book and I look forward to uh, tackling the second book soon. Now, Lauren, as a first time guest on the protagonist podcast, which is a podcast about great characters, we always ask the dinner guest question. If you could host a dinner party with any three to five fictional characters as guests, who would you want to hang out with for an evening just to sit back and enjoy the conversation? 
you know, it's probably because my mind's been so much on the Wheel of Time lately that um, I, I did think of a lot of Wheel of Time characters. But there's one character outside of that that I was thinking of recently. One of my favorite films is The Truman Show. I would love to have a conversation with Truman after the events of the movie, <laughs> you know, just to find out what happened. I love that movie and right. I love how it ends, but he's a character that I, I mean, that, that movie does exactly what it sets out to do. It makes you fall in love with the, the character who is the center of that show. And just, I find him fascinating and I would love to find out what happened at the end. Um, as far as a dinner party, it would be weird to have someone like, Batman at a table with Truman from the Truman show and try to have a conversation. <laughs> Especially because Truman was uh, the Riddler. <laughs> and that's right. That would be very weird. Yeah. <laughs> Val Kilmer with his bat, bat credit card. Is that the movie? Uh, <laughs> anyway, so the, um, a dinner party would be interesting. I think I would want all wheel of time characters. I would love to chat with Matt, uh, Perrin and Rand and loyal, the, the Ogier. I think, being at a table with them would be a fascinating experience. Moraine and Tom, I could throw them in there as well. Uh, I could listen to Tom tell stories all day. I think that would be really fun. Yeah, it's, it is such a neat trick when a storyteller like Robert Jordan in a story can make another storyteller seem special, right? Yeah. <laughs> like to up the game of storytelling for, for Tom, which is you know what happens the way his storytelling is described. You're like, oh, I wish I could hear that when you like you are sitting there hearing it. Um, I I think about that when when storytellers have to like shift gears for how a story is being told. Uh, and I was impressed with uh, how Tom was written. Yeah, there's one other character who's well, two that come to mind when I think about that. I don't know if you've read much of Brandon Sanderson's books, but uh, he has a character named Hoyd, who is a recurring character who appears in all of his books, even when they are not related to each other. Uh, or they, they they don't take place on the same world. He's got this thing called the Cosmere, which is basically every fantasy story he writes, except for the Wheel of Time, of course, because that's not his world. But all of the fantasy stories he writes take place in the same universe. And there is a recurring character who pops in and out of different planets within this universe. And his name is Hoyd. And he's one of the most interesting and um, mysterious characters of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. And it would be amazing to sit down with him for a meal because one of his traits is that he is this amazing storyteller. Um, and so that would be a fascinating thing as well. The other thing, I, I don't know if you've read uh, The Name of the Wind or a name, is it The Name of the Wind? By yeah, Patrick, Patrick Rothfuss's uh, Name of the Wind. Yeah. To me, that book does a phenomenal job of telling stories within a story. That's what that book is kind of all about. It's people retelling stories and embellishing and doing all these other things. It's yeah, the so book's can't theme trust is what you're being told on any of them. <laughs> right. But that's, that's the fascinating theme of that particular series. And that's what I love about it. It's like the stories that are being told within the story are, it's like this weird meta where it's trying to make you question what is a story, you know, and what is true and what isn't and everything. It's really fascinating. So I'd recommend that for sure. Yeah. I, I love those books and that's <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, um, Game of Thrones fans like waiting for the last books for me. It's it's waiting for the third book in the Patrick Rothfuss uh, trilogy is definitely uh, yeah, where that's, I'm at that's in my, my high fantasy angst right now. 
Totally. I, I have to read other things just to wait. Although I, for me, the second book in Rothfuss's series wasn't as good as the first. I'm still very excited for the next book. I think he's just a phenomenal writer and I'm excited for what whatever's coming. So, Yeah, I I understand. Why, uh, the, the second one is definitely feels like a, a middle chapter, which can be a mixed bag. Like a lot of people love the middle chapters of Star Wars trilogies, but um, I, sometimes it feels like a, a little bit of uh, placeholding uh, might be happening. Um, you yeah. know, where, where uh, you already built the world, but you're not wrapping it up yet. <laughs> and so, right. Uh, I, I understand that feeling, but I have enjoyed going back in to, uh, I, I've definitely reread both, both books in the, in it probably three times. I, I think I've, I've three, maybe four reads or and or listens. Oh, wow. Uh, for that one. I need to go back to the first one and read it. Cause I, I really remember it being a special experience when I read it. It just, it felt like something new for me that I really appreciated. So I'll have to give it another shot. I think. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on as a, as a guest here. Um, do you want to plug your, you want to plug your YouTube channel one more time? Yeah. It's just called unraveling the pattern. And um, the objective of the channel is just to kind of help, ease people into the wheel of time a little bit, especially people who are new to the TV show. I do have spoiler videos that I do, but I label them as such. And so, you know, if, if the wheel of time is something that's new to you or something you're maybe interested in, but you don't really know much about it, check out my channel. I think it's a, a good way to sort of learn without being spoiled. Um, that being said, you know, I'm, it's a new channel. I've only got three videos up and only two of them are spoiler free. Um, and it's a slow process because I've got a family and <laughs> uh, we're all quarantined and I work full time. And so it's been hard to find the time, but whenever I have free time, I've been working on it and I've been really enjoying it. So yeah, check it out. It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of the protagonist podcast for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 114 when we talked about Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn or episode number 188 when we talked about Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind, both of which have been name dropped in this in this discussion. <laughs> uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay And our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Go ahead and get going. And if there's any point where we need to take a break, these get edited. So no, no problem if children interrupt or anything.